Section 33 of Four and Twenty Fairy Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Whisk. Princess Lionette and Prince Cucuricu by Mademoiselle de Lebert. Translated by James Lachey. Part 1. In the Circassian mountains lived an old man and his wife, who had retired from the world, weary of the caprices of fortune. They had found for themselves a convenient retreat in a cavern, which extended far beneath one of the mountains, and the dread of seeing each other expire was the only anxiety that troubled them in their solitude. They had lived at courts, and knew all the insincerity that prevailed in them, and far from regretting the brilliant positions they had occupied, they pitied those who, from ambition or want of experience, were desirous of them. They lived a happy and quiet life. Their food consisted of fruit and fish, the later abounding in a large pond, wherein the old man amused himself by taking them, while a flock of sheep, which the old woman had the care of, produced the finest wool in the world to make their clothes with. The old man called himself Mulidor, and his wife was named Fila. They incessantly implored the gods to send somebody to console whichever might be left the last upon the earth, or to close their eyes, but their prayers had not yet been granted. It must not, however, be supposed that the gods rejected such pure and reasonable desires, but they wished to prove the constancy of these good people to recompense them afterwards with interest. The old man had just caught some fish, and after fastening his boat to the bank, he spread his net upon a rock to dry it in the sun. When a lion rushed out from one of the cavities of the rock and went to drink in the pond, Mulidor was afraid at first, but afterwards finding the proud beast was roaring because he could not reach the water, which was too far off from the edge at this spot, he re-entered his boat and, filling a bowl, offered it to the lion, who came and emptied it several times. After he had quenched his thirst, he raised his head and looked at his benefactor so mildly that the good man ventured to caress him. The lion appeared pleased at his doing so, and ate some bread and cheese which the old man took from a basket he had slung on his arm. As, however, this was not a very safe companion, Mulidor thought he had better return to his cavern, fearing that his wife, uneasy at his absence, might come in search of him, and that the lion, having less respect for her than for him, would devour her. This idea was beginning to agitate him, when the lion, after licking his hand, returned to his own home, leaving the old man at liberty to do so likewise. Upon reaching the cavern, he found his wife, as expected, alarmed at his delay. He related his adventure to her, which made her shudder. They continued to talk upon the subject, and drew this inference, that men might learn lessons of kindness and gratitude from animals. Do not, however, place yourself again at the mercy of this fierce beast, said she affectionately, or let me go with you, for I could not live under the fear I shall henceforth be in concerning you. You have restored me this time, but can I flatter myself that the gods will always be equally gracious to me? The old man, touched by her affection, promised to avoid the lion in future. This conversation kept them up late, and consequently they did not awake till the golden rays of morning shone full upon them. On opening the door to go out and feed her sheep, Fila was greatly surprised to find at it a lion of prodigious size and strength, and a lioness of equal power and beauty. The latter, carrying on her back 
a little girl of five or six years old, who, as soon as she saw the old woman, alighted, ran to her, and embraced her. The good woman stood motionless with fear and wonder, and the lions, after kissing the little girl, who returned their caresses, ran off and disappeared in an instant, leaving her in the good wife's hands. Recovering from her fright, she looked at the child, who never ceased kissing her, took her in her arms, and went into the cavern to show her to her husband. They both of them admired her beauty and gentleness. She was quite naked, her fair hair only falling over her shoulders, and upon her right breast she had a singular mark in the shape of a crown. The good people thanked the gods for this gift. They dressed the beautiful little child in a light snow-white robe and a rose-colored girdle, and tied up her hair with ribbon of the same color. She allowed them to do so quietly and without saying a word. They fondled her and gave her some ewe's milk, quite fresh. She smiled at the sight of it, and looking at them, uttered a little cry resembling a roar of a lion. She soon became accustomed to them. However, she had no resemblance to a lion but in her voice, and from that circumstance, they called her Leonette. She answered to this name, and her natural intelligence soon enabled her to understand what they said to her, and at length to speak and explain herself. She had been a year with these good people, who loved her dearly, and were equally loved by her, when Mulidor, to make her familiar with their way of life, in case she should lose them, took her out to fish with him. He had been there several times alone without meeting the lions, but little Leonette was no sooner at the foot of the rock, when the good man dried his fish, that she uttered a little roar, which awoke the lion and lioness, who ran out to her immediately, each vying with the other and fondling and caressing her. She embraced the lions affectionately, who allowed her freely to do so. At length, she jumped upon her back, and the lions ran off with her in a moment. The poor old man was in consternation. He threw himself upon the ground and prayed to die, now that he had lost Leonette, after lying there a long time. Finding his despair could be of no avail. He dragged himself to his cavern and created fresh misery there in relating to Fila the accident that had happened to Leonette. Leonette, my dear Leonette, cried the woman, is it possible we can have lost you? Alas, why did the gods present you to us so cruelly to take you from us? Of all the goods we have lost, we but regret you. Their affliction was inconsolable, and poor Mulidor had scarcely spirit enough to bear up against this misfortune. The night was passed in lamentations and tears. At break of day they went in search of her, fearing neither the lions nor their fury. Their great love for Leonette made them wish to be devoured also, if she had undergone that frightful fate. They ran to the rock where the lions had chosen to establish themselves, when suddenly they saw little Leonette riding on the lioness towards them. As soon as the lovely child saw them, she jumped down and ran and threw her arms around their necks, then taking from the back of the lioness a kid that she had killed in the chase. There, she said, see what mother lioness gives you? She took me hunting to get game for you. These good people were half crazed with delight at seeing her again. They could not help crying and bathing her pretty face with their tears. My dear daughter, oh, my dear daughter, they exclaimed, you are restored to us again. Leonette was affected at this sight. Do you then, said she, forbid me from seeing the lioness, that you can say nothing to her, and that you shed tears in embracing me? No, no, my dear child, they both cried at once. 
but we feared you had abandoned us. Mother Lioness does not wish it, said the child. She wishes me to be your daughter. She turned round for her to agree to what she said, but she was no longer there, and Leonette returned cheerfully with them to the cavern. Mulidor and Fila thought this was a very wonderful adventure. They had many private conversations about it, and determined they would not refuse the child to the lioness when she chose to come for her. At the same time, Mulidor obtained his wife's consent to consult Tigreline upon Lionette's destiny. She was a very learned fairy. I had already thought of doing so, replied Fila, and it had better be done directly. It was settled he should start the first thing in the morning. The good woman prepared a present for the fairy. The good woman prepared a present for the fairy to induce her to be more gracious. Nothing very precious. The fairies do not desire it. It was a piece of sky-blue ribbon and a little basket of nuts which Tigreline was passionately fond of. Mulidor set out on his journey to her dwelling. She had fixed her habitation in the heart of an immense forest which was filled with tigers. It was from that circumstance she took her name. When anyone sought her for a good object, the tigers did them no harm. But if they went thither with any evil design, they tore them to pieces, and none such were ever known to reach the fairy's castle. The old man, having nothing to fear upon that subject, did not arm himself with any weapon of defense, and arrived without difficulty at the castle at the moment the fairy was getting up. He found her occupied in stringing large pearls on a golden thread. She received him very graciously, and taking her spectacles off her nose, Approach, wise old man, said she. I know what has brought you here, and I am very glad to see you. Mulidor bowed profoundly and kissed Tigreline's robe. He offered his little present, which she received very kindly. Then making him sit down, she told him she would consult destiny in her large book, that she might answer correctly the questions he came to ask her. After reading for some time, she raised her eyes to heaven, then fixing them upon Mulidor. Listen, said she, to what I think of Leonette. She must be warned from loving one who is her direct opposite. Otherwise, great misfortune may happen to her, even to the loss of life. Should she arrive at twenty without this fate befalling her, I answer for her happiness. She then informed the old man that Leonette was a great princess, exposed to be eaten by lions almost immediately after she was born, through the wickedness of a certain queen, but she would not tell him anything more, and exhorted the old man to continue to cultivate in the child all those good feelings which he himself possessed, and left it to him to decide on telling her who she was, trusting to his prudence for securing her happiness. She then gave him for Leonette the string of pearls she had just finished. If she do not lose it or give it away, said the fairy, it will preserve her from many dangers. It may indeed ensure her happiness if she takes special care of it. The old man thanked the fairy and returned home, where he arrived before nightfall. He found his wife and Leonette, the later, embraced him a thousand times, and he tied the fairy's pearls around her neck, earnestly entreating her to take great care of them. She was enchanted with this new ornament, and the old man related to Fila, as soon as they were alone, all that the fairy had told him. They consulted together upon the course they should take, and resolved they would say nothing to Leonette of her birth to prevent her feeling useless regret. We can tell her at any time should it be necessary to do so, added the prudent wife, and we should be sorry for it, not having it in our power to give her more than the education of a simple shepherdess. If her disposition, sweet as it is now, 
should be changed by the knowledge of her rank. Let us attend to her heart and mind. Princesses have not the time to do so. She will learn from her own experience that they are as subject as other mortals are to the caprices of fortune, and perhaps she may be the happier for it. Mulidor quite agreed with the truth of this, and they applied themselves more than ever to the education of this amiable child whose natural excellence left them nothing to wish for. She was twelve years old and continued to go hunting with the lioness, very often carrying on her shoulder a little quiver and skillfully shooting the wild beasts. One night, returning later than usual, the cavern resounded with the roars of the lioness. Mulidor and Fila both went out and found the lioness at the door, having brought Leonette with her, who was seated on the ground, endeavoring to console the poor animal that appeared in deep despair. The lion is dead, cried the young child, and my mother cannot be comforted. A hunter has killed him. The lioness rolled upon the ground and shed torrents of tears. The old man, his wife, and Leonette did their best to soothe her grief, but after passing the whole night in the vain attempt, the lioness expired herself in the morning. The sobs and grief of Leonette were excessive, and she could not leave the body of the poor beast. She embraced it and shed tears over it. At length they dragged her from this sad scene, and while the old man buried the lioness, the kind Fila attended to Leonette, who was in the deepest affliction. When Mulidor came in, he was much moved by the child's grief and was anxious to comfort her, but finding he only increased her sorrow, he said, What would you have done then, my child, if this accident had happened to either of us? Is it not possible you could have felt it more keenly? Ah, oh, my father, cried she, holding her arms out to embrace him, fearing that he was offended at the little attention she paid to his consolations. If the gods have reserved so much misfortune for me, I implore them to let me die instantly, for I shall not be able to support it. The gods, my child, replied the old man, do not always grant such rash petitions. It is offending providence not to submit humbly to its decrees. Do you suppose you are the only one who suffers from affliction in this life? Is this the courage I thought you capable of? Leonette cast down her eyes. The severity of his remonstrance had brought a slight color into her cheeks, which made her more lovely. Mulidor felt he had said enough. He went out and left his wife to soften anything he might have said too harshly. And Fila, embracing Leonette, said, Really, my child, you would make us believe you could have no greater grief? No doubt the friendship you show for these poor animals is highly laudable, but you must take comfort and thank the gods that they have not inflicted on you greater misfortunes. Ah, my mother, cried Leonette, embracing her, how much obliged I am to you for speaking to me thus. Do not let my father be angry with me any more. I feel I could not bear it. Mulidor re-entered. Lionette ran to embrace him. He returned her caresses with a fondness that consoled the charming child. They could not sufficiently admire the goodness of her heart, her sensibility, her gentleness, and frankness, and she also loved them dearly. Leonette, however, continued to deplore the loss of the lions. A deep melancholy appeared to have taken possession of her. She dared not give way to it before Mulidor, but she felt less restraint with Vila. The worthy couple often conversed together upon this subject. They became alarmed at Leonessa's condition. They tried to amuse her. They went out more frequently, took walks with her, allowed her to go hunting and fishing, gave her birds, flowers, shells, but she preferred hunting to all other amusements. 
the part of the country in which they lived was so wild a desert that persons must either have come there on purpose or have lost their way to be seen in it so there was little danger of leonette meeting with anybody still the fact that the lion having been killed by a hunter was remembered by mulidor he never could understand how a man could get so far without having found out their retreat or being more astonished at seeing a young girl mounted on a lioness and hunting in company with a lion they did not dare ask leonette any questions about it fearing they should renew her grief and yet they asked leonette no questions about it fearing they should renew her grief and yet they feared to prohibit her from hunting feeling good souls how cruel it would be to deprive her of her favorite amusement they only entreated her therefore to take care she did not lose herself at the end of some months leonette regained her spirits a little the old man and his wife were enchanted at this happy change they congratulated themselves upon having promoted it by their indulgence and trusted that she would in time forget the lions she grew fast and began to revise character she was wonderfully beautiful even in the most simple of her dresses Bela had made her garment of the finest tiger skins and a little cap of the same material and thus attired one might have taken her for diana herself she was so graceful and majestic her beautiful black eyes heightened the brilliancy and vivacity of her complexion which neither the hottest sun nor the most scorching wind had any effect upon nor could they injure the whiteness of her arms or neck she was not at all aware of her beauty her strength of mind and her education made her above priding herself on her personal advantages she spoke well and her ideas were even superior to her language the good people were astonished to see her at so early an age evincing so much talent and judgment she was then just approaching her fifteenth birthday for some days past Vila perceived that she had taken the trouble to put her hair in curls on going to bed and that on going out she glanced at herself with a kind of satisfaction in a fountain adjoining the cavern she mentioned this to mulidor who was as much surprised at it as herself they however did not choose to speak to leonette about it but determined to watch her closely that they might discover the motive of this unusual attention to her personal appearance and they recollected that for some time past she had appeared thoughtful uneasy and indifferent to matters which had previously amused her leonette returned to the cavern rather earlier on that day she brought with her a brace of partridges that she had killed the good woman asked her if she felt too tired to help her with some spinning she wished to finish if you could dispense with my assistance said leonette i should be very much obliged to you i feel so inclined to sleep Bela consented and let her go into a little nook of the cavern which made a kind of room for her she had decorated it with all the rarest things that she had found the hangings were composed of the feathers of singular birds and an abundance of flowers and shells which she kept filled with fresh water ornamented this pretty chamber mulidor had taught her to paint she had finished some charming pictures and with the wool she had found in the cavern she had embroidered some cushions which she had arranged as a couch upon this she threw herself looking more like a goddess than a mortal the good woman becoming easy at the length of time she slept went to seek her she found her as i have just described reclining on the cushions her eyes were shut but a few tears that were struggling to escape through their long lashes convinced her that the lovely leonette was in some distress she stood looking at her for some time she had never seen her look so beautiful but at length 
Alarmed at her condition, she drew nearer, and taking her hands, pressed them affectionately between her own. This action aroused Leonette and turned her eyes toward Phila. Ah, mother, said she, throwing herself upon her neck, how ashamed I am to appear thus before you. Why, my dear girl, said Phila, why do you conceal your troubles from me? Do you not know how interested we both feel for you? What is the matter with you, my child? Do not hide your distress from me. Perhaps I could assuage it. Leonette was some time before she ventured to answer. She kept her head bent down in the old woman's hands. She kissed them passionately. At length, she regained her courage, and raising herself, her cheeks suffused with blushes. I am about to tell you something, said she, which has tormented me for some time past. Let me hope this avowal at least will serve to obtain your forgiveness. Speak, my dear girl, said Phila, and fear nothing. I am more uneasy at your grief than angry at your having concealed it from me. Annette, encouraged by this, told her that on her way to the forest about three months ago, she had seen a young shepherd fast asleep, and that an arrow which she had shot at a bird, having missed it, fell and pierced the young man's hand, that attracted by the cry he uttered, she approached him and assisted in staunching the blood. This wound, she added, awoke in my heart a strange emotion. I trembled in applying to it the herbs I had gathered, the properties of which you had taught me. He, far from being angry with me, told me he should never complain of that wound, but eternally of the one my eyes had inflicted on him. This language, quite new to me, was so fascinating that I wished never to quit him. He wept as he gazed on me. He kissed my hands to detain me. I proposed he should follow me, that my father might assist in curing him. I cannot do so, beautiful Leonette, said he, as I had told him my name. A most cruel fate has forced me to fly from the world, but promise me to come sometimes and cheer my solitude, and I shall ask nothing more from the gods. I shall believe their anger is appeased. I did promise him. He asked me too tenderly to be refused. At length, I felt you had been uneasy at my stay, and I left him with so much regret that I burst into tears and hurried away, and he might not perceive it. For I was ashamed, I think, of my compassion for him. I returned restless and miserable. Next morning I went in search of him. I cannot tell what prevented me from making you acquainted with it. But I was on the point of telling you a hundred times, and as often I felt it would be impossible to do so. Perhaps it was because he had begged me to keep it a secret. I ran to look for him to ask his permission to tell you, Approaching the spot where we had seen each other the evening before, I stopped suddenly. A feeling of reproach came over me for having hidden this proceeding from you, and besides, I was so agitated, I fear I should be ill. What shall I do by myself there, thought I? I am without help, and that which I might find is perhaps dangerous to wait for. Unfortunately, Annette, what hast thou promised to do? Fly, return to thy duty, for it is clear that thou hast wandered from it since thou art so much disturbed at taking this secret step. The gods warn thee, this state of mind is not natural. I had sat down to reflect. I got up. I retraced my steps when a grievous thought arrested me. Alas, said I, perhaps he is unable to come to meet me from the wound I inflicted on him. And if so, what will be his despair at not seeing me? There is no one to help him in this desolate place but myself. To refuse him my assistance would be inhuman. Let me find out whether he wants me, and see him but for that. I proceeded, therefore, to the fatal place where I had wounded him the evening before. He was not there. 
became alarmed. My limbs failed me. I fell upon the moss which covered the ground. I saw some traces of his blood still remaining on it. I was nearly suffocated by my grief. Happily, my tears flowed, and that revealed me, but I felt the keenest affliction when I thought that perhaps I had been the cause of his death. I drew out my arrows and broke them deliberately as a punishment for my cruelty. I caught sight by chance of the one with which I had wounded him. It was still upon the ground and stained with his blood. My tears flowed faster at this frightful sight. I gave utterance to my agony and piercing shrieks. They were interrupted by the sight of the young shepherd himself running quickly towards me. I could not rise. He threw himself on his knees near me in so much terror that I was alarmed myself at his excessive paleness. He asked me what had happened. At the same time, I put the question to him. We reassured each other. I told him the reason of my tears. Never was anyone thanked so tenderly. His words had a charm in them that went to my heart. I listened with pleasure I had never felt before. I nearly forgot his wound, so much I feared to interrupt him. I was astonished, however, to hear him say how much he loved me. He, who I had scarcely ever seen, and I was still more surprised to find how dear he had become to me. For he told me more than I dare tell him, and I believe he could read my heart, for I thought exactly as he did, only it appeared to me I could not so well have expressed myself. At last he told me he wished to be mine, and are you not so already, I said? Can you be more so than you are? That would enchant me. He smiled at my words. I thought I had said something wrong, and I blushed at my awkward manner of expressing myself. I know not what he thought, but he said a thousand more affectionate things to me. He informed me he was the son of a great king, and would be my husband. I cannot be your wife, said I. They will not let me. Ah, who will oppose it, exclaimed he, if you consent. I then told him that my father and mother had always said a crown would be an obstacle to the happiness of my life, and that they certainly would never consent to such a union. Wait for a few days, said he, and I will tell you how to soften their severity. If you love me, you will assist me in conquering it, but never refrain from coming to this place. My life depends upon your acquaintance. Fear nothing from me, lovely Leonette. Nothing can be purer than my affection, and I call all the divinities of the forest to witness that I shall ever respect as much as I love you. He gave me his hand, I gave him mine, and I vowed, as he had done, to love forever if you consented to it. I examined his hand and found the wound had healed. I was delighted at this and left him, promising to return and not to say anything to you until he desired me. I returned, so absorbed by his image, that I felt as though I only lived when he was present. I had no pleasure in anything but him. The more I saw him, the more I wished to see him. It was the same with him. He is charming, mother, and were you to see him, you could not do otherwise than love him. Three months have passed in this sweet union, and now comes my misery. This morning he told me it was necessary that he should be absent for some days, upon important business which tended much to our happiness. I had never known what it was to lose sight of him for more than a few hours. I was as wretched as he was. He told me, however, that he should soon return, and that he was even more anxious than myself to complete our happiness. I wept bitterly. At length the hour arrived for us to part. 
I unfastened my necklace and tied it around his arm. Oh, heavens, what have you done, my child? exclaimed Felia. We are lost beyond hope. She threw herself upon the ground and filled the cavern with her cries. Leonette, alarmed at this sight, arose to assist the good woman. What is the matter then, mother? she cried. Why should a necklace of such trifling consequence rouse you to so much grief? It is for you that I weep, my daughter, said Fila. Your happiness was linked with the preservation of that unfortunate necklace. She then repeated what the fairy Tigreline had said to Mulidor, and did not conceal from her that she was a princess, but that she knew nothing more. Leonette, who possessed naturally an elevated mind, was not astonished at the news. Very well, mother, said she. The more you convince me of the probability of my high birth, the more courageously I ought to bear up against the sad events which are predicted of me. Though to speak the truth, I do not believe them, and I see nothing unfortunate here but the absence of the shepherd, whom I love, and his unhappy name which made me fly from him without being able to control myself. These are the only misfortunes I know of. What say you, my daughter? exclaimed the old woman. His name caused you to fly from him? Explain this riddle, I do not understand it. Alas, this is the cause of my despair, replied Leonette. I had scarcely tied the necklace round his arm when he kissed my hand with such transport that I forgot my grief for the moment. Yes, beautiful Leonette, he said, it is for life that you have enchained the happy prince Kukriko. Hardly had he pronounced his name, which he had never told me, he preferred that I should always call him my shepherd, that I felt so horrified, without knowing wherefore, that I fled as swiftly as possible. He followed me, he called me, I had not the power to return. An invisible hand seemed to impel me forward. My dear Leonette, he cried, where are you going? It is your shepherd, it is Kunkriku who calls you. I ran still faster. At last I lost sight of him, either that I had taken paths he knew not of, or that he was afraid of such displeasing me by following me any longer. I arrived here in such confusion, I had some trouble hiding it from you. You know the rest, my mother, all that has happened to me, and I beg you a thousand pardons for profiting so little from your good lessons, and although I owe my birth to apparently powerful princes, I shall always submit to your authority." Mulidor came in as Leonette finished speaking. They made him acquainted with this adventure. He was in great alarm at what might happen from the loss of the necklace, and did not dare go and consult Tigreline, from whom they had so decidedly disobeyed. There was nothing to be done but to wait and see what would befall the princess. They entreated her to forget this young man. They succeeded by degrees in consoling her for his absence, and notwithstanding her melancholy, she took part occasionally in their cheerful conversation. Two months passed in this manner. One night they were suddenly awakened out of a deep sleep by a clap of thunder, which made them think the cavern was crumbling to pieces. They started to their feet and had no time to recover themselves before a hideous and very richly dressed fairy touched them with her wand, and they were transformed into two lionesses and a lion. She then transported them in an instant to the forest of tigers, where she vanished and left them. Who could express the consternation of the wise old man or his wife's distress? That of the princess was still greater. She reproached herself as being the cause of these good people's misfortune, and what distressed her still more was not being able to speak. She had not the power of comforting them. This calamity for the moment made her forget, 
Prince Kukriku, but when she thought she should never see him more, or that if she did, he would fly in terror from her, or at least not recognize her, she uttered such frightful roars that the forest resounded with them, and her poor companions came near her to try to console her. Their grief was redoubled to find they could neither understand nor speak to her. They groaned despairingly. At length it occurred to all three of them to go to the fairy, but they had no power of communicating the idea to each other. The lion was the first to start. The two lionesses followed him, but the tiger stopped the way, without, however, doing them any harm. Finding their intentions were frustrated, they concluded it was by the fairy's orders. They buried themselves in the thickest part of the forest and laid down very sorrowfully upon some beautiful green grass, which served as a bed for them. They passed some considerable time in this place without seeing the fairy. She took care, however, to send them food by one of the tigers regularly every day. It is now time to acquaint the reader who Prince Hukriku was. That young prince was the son of a king who had been very powerful, and who had reigned in the fortunate islands. This king was dead, and having left his son at a tender age, the queen became regent. The ambition of reigning, the pride of being sovereign mistress, had closed her heart against the feelings of nature. She had her son brought up in a castle upon the edge of the sea, in luxury and idleness unequaled, and her excuse for this sort of education was a prediction of the fairies at his birth, to the effect that his life would be endangered if he took up arms before he was twenty years old. Everything was interdicted that could give him any desire for military exercises, and the art of war was depicted in such frightful colors that however valiant the prince might have been born, he shuddered at even the picture of a sword. The king, his father, who had died in battle, was represented to him as so sanguinary a sovereign that he vowed he would never imitate him. They had named this prince Kunkriku, in derision from his having amused himself one day, contrary to the desire of his tutors, with looking at a fight between two gamecocks. He spent his life in walking, in hearing sentimental romances read to him, the heroes of which they represented in such a manner that he might not have a desire to become like them. He learned to play upon several instruments, to paint, and to work at tapestry. The queen went to see him very often, and pictured to him the fate of kings in such distressing colors that he dreaded the moment when he should ascend the throne. He was just ten years old, the time appointed for the queen to resign the throne to him, when walking on the coast, apart from his followers, he was caught up by a whirlwind and disappeared in an instant. His tutors, surprised that he was so long a time in returning, went to seek him, but could find him nowhere. The most diligent search proved in vain, and they were compelled to apprise the queen of this mysterious circumstance. She would easily have been consoled for this accident if the people of the island, tired of her government and indignant at the education that had been given to their king, had not risen in rebellion. After having torn her ministers in pieces, they compelled her to fly to a neighboring monarch who granted her an asylum. This king had been a widower for two years, having but one daughter, and giving birth to whom the queen died. He married the fugitive queen, and the people of the fortunate islands elected a council to rule the kingdom until they could obtain news of their prince Kukriku, whom they did not believe to be dead. They were right. The whirlwind had been caused by a fairy who, delighted at the sight of so beautiful a prince and angry to find him brought up so badly, had resolved 
to purloin him from a mother who had proved herself unworthy of being blessed with such a son. End of section 33. Recording by Jennifer Fisk.